Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Brandon Pearson. Brandon is the director for Near Space Education. So welcome, and we're going to learn about some satellites, mm -hmm. I think, today. So that's our big thing, understand yeah. what, because you mentioned something I didn't know about when we were talking. And it's, I, get, I mean, I've heard about it, but I didn't mm -hmm. know what the heck it was, and that was CubeSat. Yep. Yeah. And so and we're like, okay, it's you've got to explain this to everyone else, because right. I didn't understand what that was. Right. So when you go and you think of a traditional satellite, you know, now when satellites were first made, back when you talk about the space race and those things, they weren't the giant big ones you're talking about now. You know, Sputnik, which was the first one that orbited around the Earth, came in around 150 pounds, that kind of thing. So you imagine about the size of your typical inflated classroom globe with four little poles coming off of it. That's the size of Sputnik. But now, you know, you think of the Hubble Space Telescope, the gigantic size of the James Webb Telescope, these massive, you know, car and bus-sized satellites that are being launched up on the front of these rockets, that kind of thing. Really cool, but extremely, extremely expensive. Back in the day, you also would have to go and you had to pay not only for the satellite, which is going to cost you tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars or more, yeah. you're going to have to pay for the entire rocket launch and the licensing and the fuel costs and everything to get your satellite to what's up there. So that's how a lot of our GPS satellites got up there, a lot of the, you know, for global positioning systems, those kind of things in place. Well, there got to be this desire to go and to shrink the size of the satellites, particularly among the academic community at colleges and university levels, to be able to have students get involved as well. And around the turn of the century in 1999, a bunch of different professors, including Bob Twiggs from Stanford, came together and came up with the idea of what was called the CubeSat. Now, the CubeSat is significantly smaller in size, and NASA defines a small satellite as anything under 150 kilograms. Really? In my mind, that's still really big, but yeah. as opposed to the mass of some of these really large ones, you know, mm -hmm. now we're talking about, you know, the size of close maybe to, you know, a human or, you know, a fridge or those kind of things. So think like small satellite, anything smaller than a fridge. That kind okay. Of okay. But that's still pretty big if you're looking at wanting to do at a university level with students and those kind of things. So these professors and gentlemen came together and started to design the framework for what eventually became the CubeSat. And this CubeSat is classified as what is called a NanoSat because of its size. It's under 10 kilograms or around 25 pounds. And it is based off of a kind of a, imagine the toy blocks you might play with when you're growing up and how I can stack them into different configurations, you know. Yeah. I can take the standard CubeSat size, which is called a 1U or a 1 unit, and it's 4 inches by 4 inches or 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters is the official standard measurement that mm -hmm. they use. And I can now stack those on top of each other. So I can use the regular standard size, which is a 1U, or I could put two of them on top of each other and get a 2U. I could stack three on top of each other and get what is called a 3U. Okay. I could take two of those stacks of three, one right next to each other, and I can get a 6U, so I have six units that are just stacked in a row of two by three, or I could have four stacks of three 
in a kind of long rectangular pattern. And that's the largest size I'm familiar with, which is called a 12U. And that is kind of the cap of when you get to the CubeSat design that's being done nowadays. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you're talking a softball wouldn't fit in that. No. Nope. No, you, a baseball, baseball, a baseball, a baseball, baseball won't. A softball won't. No. You what are you doing research-wise? What, what is someone researching that fits in that small of a space? So there's a lot of different interest levels in terms of things with communication. There's a lot of interest levels in terms of picking up solar winds. That was used a lot at the beginnings of this, of picking up how do we start analyzing. Like, I can launch one satellite that was a massive satellite that does have way, way, way more capabilities than what I could ever put in this little guy. Mm -hmm. Or I can launch a bunch of these and spread them out across the Earth that allows me to collect a lot more of space weather data and information, those kind of things. So you could be testing different communication systems. Some groups will go and they will test their new designs they're coming up with. So there's a lot of interest in propulsion because we're trying to find ways where we can go and now we send up a satellite and it's orbiting around the Earth, and then the satellite runs out of energy and dies, mm -hmm. there are ways that we could actually like rendezvous them with like a gas station of type and refuel the satellite while it's orbiting. So now I have thrusters on the sides of my satellites where it can come up to a station, it can dock with the station, be recharged, and then released again so that it can continue to keep orbiting around and now uh, prolonged its mission? Mm -hmm. Are there ways that I can go and I can switch out parts on the satellite by swapping out different pieces, those kind of things. So, I mean, you think back in the day, you used to go and our computers that we carry in our backpacks or even our cell phones used to take up massive, massive rooms. Yes. Same thing happened with satellites. As time has gone on and as technology has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, we now are able to go and cram an incredible amount of atmospheric, um, aerospace, technology, sensor collection data, that kind of stuff, into these things that puts us way above what they were launching in the original satellites back in the space days. And just to clarify, you said these are about four inches by four inches mm -hmm. by four. Yeah. And did you you said they could be up to twenty five pounds? So they can. Yeah. Obviously, depends on the size. Okay. But the the to fit in within NASA's NanoSat classification, uh -huh. which is what this does, it just has to be within that one to 10 kilogram range. Most actual CubeSats come in closer at four to five pounds. Okay, I was just thinking, what would be yeah. stuff? I mean, you're, you're filling it up with batteries, you're putting oh, solar panels okay. on the outside, mm -hmm. you're putting in your main flight processing system, mm -hmm. you're maybe putting in some type of altitude control system so I can now direct which way it's pointing oh, okay. while it's flying around the earth, that kind of stuff. Wow. I can put on my antennas. I can put on one of the things that Near Space Launch, which is the satellite company Near Space Education is connected with that's actually building these satellites, mm -hmm. are working on is um, a particle detector that would collect a wide range of solar particles for analysts, um, analysis and those things relating to space weather. You could put something like that on here. Um, all these new capabilities, as the sensors are getting smaller, as the electronics are getting smaller, I don't need a gigantic satellite to put that all in. I can now put it in a smaller bus. That is what a kind of a satellite is called. It houses whatever electronics you want. So like a bus would go and you'd fill up with people or those kind of things. Mm -hmm. The 1U CubeSat bus 
would go and have everything needed for the satellite to work and communicate and that kind of stuff. But then I can put your payload, as it's called, into that satellite to meet whatever mission or desire you'd want to have. All right, so near space, because you, uh, you'll be able to talk more with Thorny about what they do in particular. Mm -hmm. Because they're, you said they're, they're collecting space dust? Well, they're collecting, they're looking at, not space dust, they're looking at the um, different types of particles that are coming off of the sun. So you're talking about alpha waves, you're talking about different type of the solar energy that's coming through. So you can collect things like UV radiation. Um, there's some satellites, in fact, the, one of the schools I was at earlier, we went and we were collecting the different types of UV radiation. Mm -hmm. But then you have all these high energetic particles that are coming from the sun, and you have protons, and you have electrons that are getting ejected, all of those kind of things. And depending where you're at in the atmosphere, depending where you're at um, around the Earth, depending what time of year it is, depending on the activity of the sun, those particles are going to vary drastically yeah. in amount. But you can use that data to predict things that are even going to happen here on Earth. I know there were fears um, within the past couple years about massive solar activity and how that was going to impact electronics and communications yeah. and things down here on the Earth. So by monitoring those things more at the outer levels of our atmosphere, it gives us better prediction for what's going to happen down below. So when you're talking about space weather, it's those mm -hmm. sorts of things that yeah. you're measuring. But there's additional things that they go and they're designing these satellites for. Sometimes you have a need for, well, you think of a group like um, SpaceX who's mm -hmm. sending up, you know, 50, 60. SpaceX just sent up another 50 of their Starlink Internet satellites to oh. be able to go and start making this um, you worldwide constellation of networks. And they are not um, using the CubeSat design. They have their own system in place they have. But maybe you need to go and you need to get a bunch of small satellites up that can communicate with each other for some reason. Um, these are additional things that other groups are looking into as well. If we need to rapidly deploy a bunch of them, what that would look like? Well, I could either put one massive one up or I could spread out my capabilities by going and putting up a bunch of smaller ones. And one of the things you can do as well that Near Space Launch has done, and they're doing more of, is taking your standard size, in this case a 1U, and what if we slice it even smaller? So I take this 4 by 4 inch cube, and now I slice it into seven slices of bread, essentially. Yeah. Now I have seven smaller satellites that fit within the exact same parameters of the standard deployment tube, which we can talk more about in a second. But now I don't have one satellite, I have seven satellites. So they did what was called a mission, or a ThinSat mission, where they worked with universities, and they worked with Virginia Space, and they worked with um, Twig Space Labs to launch 60 of these ThinSats all at once. Instead of launching two 3U satellites with this size here, which is about a foot tall, they sliced it into 27, uh, 21 sections, essentially. And now you're able to fly 21 separate satellites that can spread out from each other and give you more spectrum and those kind of things, as opposed to going and just flying a single one. So there's a lot of really interesting things that are coming in the satellite industry, not only getting smaller, but how do we get unique about saying that we want quantity and not, qual you know, we want a bigger quantity yeah. by just making them even smaller yet? No, it's, it really blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, how small, I mean, but then I stop and think, my watch on my wrist mm -hmm. is a very small thing, mm -hmm. and yet it knows where I am, it knows my blood pressure, it tracks all of these different 
or my heart pulse, yep. pulse or whatever. But it, I mean, it, it tracks my sleep, it tracks my movement. It, it's gathering tons of information. Yep. So I, I guess something like that, but just space is so big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, how, how, I mean, I just think that's going to get lost out there. Right. And so it's, how are they communicating back? So there's, there's a couple different ways you can do this. The way of the past that used to go and you have to do this a lot, and a lot of the really big satellites do, is I have an antenna on the side of my satellite that is communicating directly to a ground station. And I don't know if you guys personally have ever seen these ground stations. When I lived in Africa on the way out to the airport, we drove by one of the U.S.'s old ground stations, and it was probably the half the size of Rossi Stadium in terms of the actual dish. I mean, this thing oh. was massive. Probably, you know, if you were to stand in the bottom of the stadium and you were to look up to the top, it was at least that tall. And I'd say it probably would take up half of the actual field of a football field in size. And your satellite would go and would orbit the Earth, but the only time you could ever get data is when your antenna was over the top of whatever that range was that that ground station could pick up. Yeah. Well, now that limits how often I can communicate with my satellite. It's expensive to maintain and run the ground station, especially since that has to come out of my pocket. Mm -hmm. And now if there's any other issue in that process, depending if I miss something like that, I can miss data in the process that I'm trying to collect. Mm -hmm. The other option, and this is where um, Near Space Launch really kind of got their identity started, was what if we go and stick an antenna on that isn't communicating down, but it's communicating up? And what I mean by that is most of these satellites we're flying, you're talking about in the 200, 300, 400 kilometer range above the Earth's atmosphere. Uh -oh. Above those are all of the communication satellites that have already been put up there in the form of what's called a constellation. So when you say above the atmosphere, you, you mean above like the surface of the Earth, Correct, right? yes. At, at that point, above mm -hmm. the surface of the Earth. Yeah. Okay. So you're going and above where these satellites are flying at. So there's there's a couple of really big constellation networks out there. There's a group called Global Star and they make and another group called Iridium and they're really known for satellite phones, those kind of things. So if you're going backpacking out in the middle of the Rocky Mountains and you need to be able to communicate um, or fishing in Canada like I was mm -hmm. a few years ago and I need to make a call, I could pull out my Global Star phone that they would have and it would connect directly to a satellite. So those 50, 60, 70, 80 satellites are already up there communicating with each other and creating kind of like this 24-7 connection network all around the U.S. So instead of me having to put a really, really expensive and extremely powerful antenna, which requires a ton of battery space, it requires a significant amount of my satellite, which probably honestly wouldn't even fit on a 1U in the first place, to send information down, what if I put in a much smaller device on the side of my satellite that is sending data up to those already established connections, and it goes down through their ground stations, and now directly to my phone or directly to the internet console, or whatever I'm using. By using that, I now can communicate with my satellite 24 seven. Uh. Because I have a constant connection that if I miss this satellite, well, here comes another one right behind it. And I can communicate with all those satellites multiple times. Just like our phones, there are ways where you can go and you can see how many satellites your phone's GPS is connected to at that yeah. time. So I've used sensors on our student payloads that will say you're connected to six satellites at this time or that kind of thing. Well, I'm doing the same thing, except now I'm using those satellites as a relay station so I can send information down 
And with the new system they have, we can also send it back up to the satellite as well. So we need to change something in the satellite. I can send it from my phone to the ground station, up to their network, and then it'll be sent directly to my satellite to allow me to communicate if I need to change something or, hey, this satellite isn't operating, I need to kill the mission and actually stop it, then I can do that. Or I need it to deorbit now, then I can go and I can hit that kill option as well, all of those different options. Uh, so, all right, but how are these getting up there? Well, there's a couple ways. One of the ways to go is your traditional rocket. Yeah. Now, once again, in the past what you do is your satellite, if you're thinking big, big satellite, mm -hmm. that was your main payload. That was the main thing that was going up. Mm -hmm. So you have your boosters on the bottom, and you have the long, middle, first stage, second stage. Those are familiar terms. If you ever watch a rocket launch, you'll hear first stage separation, second stage separation, those kind of things that are taking place. The whole first stage is just to get you through the hardest part of the atmosphere on the way up, and that's where you get all the fuel and those things, and that's the yeah. biggest boosters you're seeing on the bottom. Then you're getting into the second stage, which is usually a smaller rocket. You don't have nearly as much atmosphere, but I still got quite a ways I got to push my rocket up there. Eventually I get up high enough that whatever covering I have over the front of my rocket to protect it as I'm going up through the atmosphere opens away. And once I get to the altitude that I want, it will go and it will be deployed or launched and it will be pushed off, might have its own thrusters and might be given a little push, um, push by the rocket, um, mm -hmm. whatever way kind of like that. With these smaller satellites, they got a little bit more creative. And what happens is they go and they use what are called deployers. And this deployer is basically a box. It's a metal box with a spring on the inside. And what I'm gonna do here, since I have it on my lap, is I'm gonna take this 3U satellite, which is the bigger one. It's the 3-1U stacked on top of each other. I'm gonna put it inside the deployer. And when I put it in there, I'm compressing a spring. Yeah. Now that spring gets compressed all the way in and allows me to go and close the lid because I don't want this thing coming out early. And there are basically screw holes on the back of this box. I mean, okay. it's, it's a canister essentially because uh -huh. it's all metal. And these screw holes get directly bolted onto the underside of the rocket. And now by the rocket, I'm not talking about one of those first two stages that break off. I'm talking about that last piece, the nose cone up at the top. Mm -hmm. okay. So it might be attached on, um, some companies are getting really unique and they're making specific structures like SpaceX that will house a bunch of these kind of on like a cylinder up on the very top. Um, some of them are taking it and like, for example, with one of the ThinSat missions, the main mission was to get the Cygnus space capsule to the International Space Station. That was the main purpose of the rocket. Yeah. But on the underside of that last booster that pushed the capsule off were one of these that was bolted so that once we got up to 200 kilometers, a command is sent, the door opens, and the spring on the inside, it's going to shoot out at you, so watch out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The spring on the inside is going to go and it's going to launch and shoot the satellite up. Now remember, you don't have gravity up there. Yeah. You have very little atmosphere up there. So that push from the spring is enough needed to actually kick your satellite out into orbit. They also have these kind of devices built onto the International Space Station. There is a group called Nanorax that does a lot of these. And I believe they started deploying these CubeSats um, starting in 2014. So someone will send their CubeSatellite up to the International Space Station. 
and then they will put it in a launcher and they will shoot it out from one of these deployers that is permanently attached to the International Space Station. I've also heard about astronauts just being on spacewalks outside the International Space Station and they'll take these and they just chuck them. <laughs> and they chuck them, but because of the speed they're traveling at, when they throw these things, they're going at 15,000 miles an hour. Because the astronauts are going at that speed around the Earth. So if I'm taking them, and I'm in gravity, and I'm just throwing it off the side of the ISS when I'm on a spacewalk, it's going to be going at that same speed, plus whatever extra little bit they put yeah. on it. So you've already got going. I mean... The astronauts are already orbiting the Earth yeah. at around that 15,000 miles an hour, and now I've thrown the satellite at the same speed. I now have enough speed needed to keep orbiting the Earth until eventually it builds up enough friction that it gets pulled back down by gravity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!